Broadcasting live from an MCU F-bomb somehow not said by Sam Jackson, this is Pop Culture Reference, your one-stop reference for all things pop culture. I'm one of your hosts, Groot. I am Groot. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, and we are talking Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 today, brand new, James Gunn, interesting flick, we're going to really get into it, and we're actually going to get into it pretty soon, because we we don't have a lot of news today. We're going to be recapping a lot of the Writers Guild stuff going on right now later in the episode, but we're really going to just jump right into it. Suit up and you're among us. Choose your, choose your spacesuit color, <laughs> oh God. Seamus. I'm, I'm proud of us for not making that the broadcasting location character. <laughs> I didn't even consider it, so that is Oh, good. of course, of course. I... Would love to know your thoughts, Garrett, on Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. Well, let's get into that in our main segment. For today's main segment, we're jumping right into Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. As we just said a second ago, I bet you love that transition music. You gotta give the people what they want. Of and course, that is it's Kevin the McCloud. <laughs> yes, exactly. Our, our boy. So, Seamus... You and I saw this last night. I think we should talk first about our movie-going experience. Because <laughs> we went Friday night, IMAX, 6.30 p.m. showing, like, prime time. Opening, opening night, weekend. damn it. You and I were both excited to see this movie. So was everybody else in our theater, I'll say that. But <laughs> I think I've never been more pessimistic about the general movie-going audience than I was when we were watching the movie last night because from the very beginning we'll get into this in spoilers from the onset of the movie it has a dark opening transitioning into opening credits that have a completely different tone than the first two Guardians of the Galaxy opening Mm -hmm. credits it's a huge decision it's a very big statement frankly pretty shocking I was expecting Mm -hmm. something very different Our audience was, and this is going to sound harsh, but our audience was too illiterate to understand, even from that (laughs) exact moment, that the entire film that they were about to watch was not Spider-Man No Way Home. And that this wasn't laugh-about-clap-big-time-cheer-a-thon that most Marvel movies have conditioned them to expect. They have been eating garbage for so long that they don't know how to watch a real movie. This is a a two-and-a-half-hour movie, exactly, I think, two-and-a-half hours. And well into the third act, we were still having guys cheer and clap and woot and talk to the screen like they were watching some kind of interactive screening when this movie is incredibly dark, incredibly difficult to watch. Frankly, after sleeping on it, this movie should be rated R. I think I might agree with you. It is an incredibly upsetting film, content-wise. After sleeping on it myself and having some thoughts right after the screening, I think it's a very well-done film. I really enjoyed our... Well, I enjoyed the movie. I did not enjoy our experience with everybody in that theater who couldn't just, like, let a moment happen. You know, that was really getting to me, is that there were really incredible moments in this film that you need to just watch and absorb and think about for for half a second and literally on all four sides of us there were people talking and explaining what is happening to the people they're with and on their phones and like you were saying it's like they went and paid for a ticket to a movie to wait for the moment that they thought was appropriate to whoop and holler and yell expletives at the characters on screen like this was that kind of movie and it really did dampen a bit of the experience for me but the content itself is rough your rated r stamp on this one might not be altogether unreasonable there's like straight up gore there's like blood splatters there are things that are in actual horror movies that happen in this marvel film that really shocked me we both didn't do a lot of research going in we just knew like hey buckle up this is gonna take you to a dark place and it really it went there tenfold it was it was crazy i really can't get over the three-year-old who was crying after one of the first intense scenes like really intense scenes that parent just let them stay the whole movie it doesn't really let up that movie is that movie for the entirety of the runtime we should touch on there is certainly some tonal inconsistency in this film yes that is one of the major issues with it but also when you have a movie 
that is hitting lows that are as low as the lows in this movie, emotionally speaking. There's no way for it to not be tonally jarring, I don't think. Yeah, I agree with that. There needed to be a little more balance because it, it was a lot of extremes one way or the other. Like the most upsetting thing you've ever seen in like a regular big blockbuster that is just like a sci-fi adventure. And then on the flip side of that, you have some bits that feel like they were pulled right out of like the Christmas special that, well, I really, really enjoyed the Christmas special. That movie is not the Christmas special. There, There is a lot more going on emotionally and dynamically with the story they're trying to tell that sometimes the bits got on me a little bit. As Tracy Jordan would want, I'll put it in Star Wars. Um, <laughs> it's like if you took the dumbest episodes of season three of The Mandalorian and they were in the same movie with the darkest episodes of Andor. Oh, wow. That's a great way to put it. That's actually a great way to put it. I, I agree with that. It flip-flops a little bit, but the moments that work really override a lot of the moments that don't for me. I think overall, I enjoyed the hell out of this movie. You and I talked about this movie a lot more than we usually do before we record a podcast about mm. the movie. And that's because there was a lot for us to digest and a lot for us to unpack. And I know I'm going to have to see this movie again to really articulate yes. everything that i feel about it which is an interesting place to be when we're recording a podcast about it <laughs> but i think that after sleeping on it both i do have more problems with it than i did you know 12 hours ago right however i do think i appreciate it more now after reflecting on it for a while you were a little more hot for it than I was. I was a little lower on the scale, but I think we're kind of meeting a little more in the middle here as we've had a little more time to think about it. I'm interested to see more of the specifics that you might have reflected on when we get to spoilers, because I, I definitely have. But Man. overall, I mean, performances, amazing. Like, th this cast just really never lets us down. I think uh, this is actually maybe the best Chris Pratt has been in any of these movies. Yeah, you know what? And especially there, there's a lot of interesting choices that I, I liked that, while I thought this movie was going to be a lot more focused on him and the aftermath of Endgame and like that kind of adventure, it again lets this character be more interesting than just like any other regular MCU main character guy doing his Earth thing on Earth, doing all that kind of adventure. I He did a really good job because it was a lot more pain than we're used to seeing peter i mean he's he's constantly in pain he has a rough life but <laughs> emotionally personally in a conflict that is like just himself pretty much it it was very it was very good to see everybody else still on their a game main man dave batista he i was gonna say so good he's so good all the time he had one moment in this that i won't spoil but i was like oh man i've never seen dave batista do something like this I just really enjoyed him. I think this is also the best, and it's the best material she's ever been given for Pom Clementif, who plays Mantis. Mm -hmm. Really, all of the main characters were great, including the most Vin Diesel-y sounding Groot we've ever seen. <laughs> yeah, this, this version of Groot is just growing into Vin Diesel, apparently. I'm almost surprised they didn't give him like a weird flower tank top at some point. <laughs> we are family. <laughs> Oh, I'm sure we've made that joke a thousand times, but it's funny every time, Garrett. And it sounds like we're about to move into spoilers. So before we do, I feel like, and I don't think we've ever had to do this on this show before, I feel like I need to preface, because I don't know the age demographics of people that listen to this show or like what your history is or whatever. We are going to be talking about really probably the most upsetting topics that we have ever talked about on this show including animal abuse and cruelty, suicide, alcoholism, grief, anything else that you can think of off the top of your head, eugenics. Just general, like I said before, real gore and real violence, which is honestly very surprising for, for an MCU movie in general. So I would say any kind of Disney movie, any kind of movie produced. Yeah, this, that was a Disney movie. How many... I mean, we'll get into it. There's a lot of snapping of appendages and, and the like. It's a lot. Yeah. So, just a heads up. If you've seen the movie, which I would think a lot of people listening to spoilers have, obviously you know what's coming. But if you've not seen the movie, this is your this is your warning that it's not happy fun times. It's not, it is not happy fun times. And 
with that, let's let's break into spoilers a little bit here. Do you want to jump right to the dark stuff? Do you I think wanna, we have I mean... to. I think to talk about everything else that we have to have an understanding mm. of the dark, dark undercurrent that's running through this whole movie. This is surely a rocket movie. They really lay that out there right off the bat. Not necessarily the character that I was... Because I knew it was going to be a lot about Rocket from the very little that I that I knew about it, but it, it's it's very squarely a Rocket movie. Yeah. Even from the intro, let's talk very intro, little baby Rocket in his brood of raccoons in a cage with the largest hand I've ever seen just looming over him. In IMAX, too. In IMAX, just feeling the doom music that is coming over everything. It starts with dread. It, it builds throughout the movie with so much dread in a lot of these flashback sequences where you know what's going to happen by the time you get to the end of this origin that we keep cutting back to of how Rocket became the way he is physically and emotionally in his personality, like what he's gone through to become the character that we know. It's a lot. Way heavier than I thought what we were going into last night was. No. Again, I think you and I were both braced, but that does not equate to what we went into. It's one thing to hear him say for two movies, I'm an abomination, I didn't ask to be made, I was torn apart and put back together again a million times. And it's Mm. another thing to see it. See it a lot, and with more characters than just him. An already incredibly tragic character we we see the depth of tragedy that he goes through in his young life and it is heartbreaking and that's the thing that i think really gets to me is when we meet rocket he is this gruff crass mass murderer who you know he's bradley cooper's rocket (laughs) yeah yeah going and taking it not just back to a defenseless unsentient animal but a child and make us watch this child animal be forced into sentience for the first time the only thing it has ever known its entire life is i'm a, i'm almost i'm you can hear my voice wavering i think because this is the scene I, that really impacted me the most in the I'm whole like, film i'm sitting back listening to you getting sad for real like yeah. i i get it i i was sitting right next to you man this is this is a lot this is dark stuff the only thing it's known its entire life is fear and pain to the point that when it is given not only the ability to self-reflect, but the ability to articulate its emotion, the first and only word it is able to conjure is hurts. Oh, in that little baby Bradley Cooper voice, it is so upsetting and that first scene, rather, in his gaining of sentience and his only thing he has ever had introspection about is, like, l- the literal state of pain that he's in. It's a lot to take in. They couple that right with a big, creepy, freaky jump scare, Toy Story 1, pieced-together beings that come out to him. And then that is what we then learn is his first family. He's taken from his literal brothers and sisters... Because he stands out in the crowd. He's not the one cowering back like they all are. And then Mm -hmm. in his moment of pure misery, he finds his first misfit family that is truly just like the sketchboard for a psycho. Beings that are trying to make sense of what they are and of who they are. Finally, they they have this ability to to have, they can look in a mirror and, and think about what they are and they... They find themselves together, and that bolsters so much of Rocket with Groot and the rest of the Guardians as we know them in the future, and how that is pieced more and more together throughout these flashbacks in the film. I thought it was just incredible and devastating every single step of the way. It's really informed the most, I think, his relationship with Groot, and I've been reflecting on that a lot. What he must think about Groot And I also thought about the Collector. Oh, yeah. Who takes living beings and puts them in cages. I mean, he doesn't tear them apart and put them together. They make explicit in this film 
something which was already explored, I think, in Endgame, the relationship between him and Nebula and the camaraderie between him and Nebula because they are both monstrosities who their entire life only knew pain and fear and were replaced to be made better. You mentioned that he's the only raccoon baby that doesn't cower from the hand, and throughout the whole film, a running thing is the high evolutionary played horrifyingly by Chuck Woody Awuji, University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee alum, wants to know what makes Rocket special. Why is he the only one of the high evolutionary's creations who exhibits true intelligence? I like the implication from that very first scene when he is the only one that doesn't cower from the hand. That is something that is just inherent to Rocket, that there's nothing that the high evolutionary can pull from him or put in him or replicate from him that can produce Rocket because Rocket is just Rocket. And I love that that is true from moment one in this film. I love the high evolutionary in this as well and his obsession with perfection and utopia and being blinded to the fact that like a natural sense of intelligence or bravery or tenacity whatever you want to call a baby raccoon not pulling away from a hand in a moment of uncertainty in that way he's so desperate and crazy about like what is it that i can extract and what is it that will fulfill my one and only desire as the high evolutionary which is very well written as he is a snake eating his own tail he's just an endless loop of upgrades and the evolution that he wants so badly that he is the designer for and then the misfit himself rocket is the key to the puzzle of he can't control that and he just, he's so blinded and enraged and crazy about what he wants to achieve in the galaxy that it just completely goes over his weird robocop head and I, I really like that a lot throughout the entire flashbacks through the, the main timeline stuff. His entire characterization, I, I really liked a lot. And the, the motivations that he was being driven by that were so clearly like the, the rest of the people, the Guardians themselves, everybody else, even the sovereign connection that he has there. The people that are with him, his underlings are not understanding what he is so obsessed with. I, I like that a lot. Sorry, Seamus, you said Robocop, and I forgot to clap and scream and woot and cheer. <laughs> oh my god, dude, I couldn't believe that. Like, that's a good reference. He does kind of look like weird, gross Robocop face glued onto a robot head, but just let it happen. Just let the character speak, damn it. I, I want to like the quips, but I like the quips less when everyone is just waiting for them with bated breath to let me know that they heard the quips. It ugh, drives me crazy. That's how they evolved. The high evolutionary of Mickey Mouse has conditioned its audience to just eat it all and pretend that you're super hyped even when you're clearly vocally not understanding what kind of movie you're watching. I love at the end when Rocket tells him, you know, you're never going to be satisfied, you're never going to be happy because you don't actually want to build a better world, you just want to tear down the one that's here. Incredible scene in their, in their re reuniting, what, what is that, their, sh their face-off, their showdown after... <laughs> it's not a trap if you know it's a trap, then it's a face-off. Oh, <laughs> uh, I was like, I kept almost waiting for a face-off, like a John Woo's face-off reference. I was like, ah, he left Earth too early. He never got to see that masterpiece. That's so sad. Speaking of face-off, if the high evolutionary, I mean, dipping our toe into the gore effects a little bit here. Mm -hmm. They rip the high evolutionary's face clean off like it. the Joker stapled it to his head. You know, it's maybe almost surprisingly... Not even the most upsetting thing you see in this movie, violence no. and gore-wise. And, it, I mean, it looks disgusting. His jaw is ripped apart from our previous flashback to what happened when Rocket figured out the scheme and, and started to escape with his friends and ripping his face apart in, in a blind, angry rage. After and, his friends were gunned down in front of him, uh, all of his little animal. Teefs, Lila, and Floor... The three characters that I knew were never, ever seeing the big blue sky. And every flashback, I knew that they weren't making it out. Even knowing that full well from pretty much the first time that they meet in that first flashback, 
seeing it happen, just literally just gunned down. A little excited bunny rabbit shot to death by a gun. It is it is hard to watch, to say the least. Rocket gets his in, and we see the anger in Rocket trying to cover the grief that he never lets go of until he meets the Guardians, until he meets his second family. Yeah, and that, that's a little bit... You were, you were mentioning his relationship with Groot and how he must internalize so much of the first experiences he can remember and then forging that bond with somebody that, while incredibly capable and strong, sticking by his side no matter what, it's like somebody that he too takes care of in a way that he couldn't with his first friends, his first three friends. Thinking back to Guardians 1, Groot's sacrifice, he said, no, Groot, you'll die. Those tears in that raccoon face, man, it just lands so much more weight on his losing of what was maybe his only other true family at that point. But, you know, since being with the High Evolutionary, it it hurts. It hurts to think about. I think it lends a new depth to his relationship with Yondu in Volume 2, which, as we said last week, is already probably the most interesting part of that film. Mm Mm-hmm. There's a lot of talk about stupidity in this film, Rocket is simultaneously saved and burdened by his intelligence. It is the thing that allowed him to escape, but it is also the thing that killed his friends. Groot and Drax are dumb, for all intents and purposes, but they are also, as Mantis says, like, really they're the ones that don't carry around the burden of self-loathing and guilt. Because Drax has actually made his peace with the death of his family. Mm -hmm. We see throughout this that Nebula and Peter and Rocket have not made peace with the things that they're running from. That's what I think makes this such a good finale for those characters, is that Gunn was able to craft a story that, while not every character quite gets as many moments as they probably deserve, you've got to pick and choose your battles. He was able to create a story that thematically helped every single member of the Guardians find their peace. Yeah, in my time that I had to think about this movie, a lot of what I wanted, I myself, I'm not completely innocent with my own Marvel worm eating my brain, and that I was getting greedy. I wanted more of the things that I know would have been great. I wanted more Kraglin, you know, I, God bless him. I wanted more Adam Warlock, who we haven't even mentioned, who I, I thought Will Poulter was doing a great job with. I really enjoyed that character and what he added to the, to the mix. But like what you're saying, it's a movie about loss and concession and making peace with that loss and concession in yourself. I mean, with your family, obviously, they have each other like they have no other people in the entire galaxy, but then having that support and finding what you need in yourself and going out to to do what you need. That is executed very, very well by the end of this movie. Even if I, in the moment, I was like, well, there's so much, there's so many more like movies worth of things that could be done with all of the things that they've set up in this specific micro franchise within the larger marvel franchise but thinking back on it now i i'm very very satisfied with how so many of these characters that we've watched grown together find their own peace in themselves and that's why it's such a bold ending right is because it is inherently unsatisfying that the answers to life are not and then they were a family and they all lived happily ever after If the function of family, of bringing through the true arc of what the Guardians movies are about from moment one, of taking broken people, bringing them together, and helping them learn from each other and make each other better, then the natural conclusion to that is, you know, nothing lasts forever. And Gamora dies. Things get bad again. And there's more that you have to process. And there's things that you still haven't processed. If family makes you stronger, if family helps you go back out into the world a more fully realized version of yourself, then that's where those characters have to go. And that's not the kind of happy ending that we're used to getting, especially from the last film in a trilogy of films within a 
30-some movie mm. franchise that has largely been about punching monsters out of the sky. I agree. I would very much like to revisit these as almost the contained way that we personally view them. I want to watch... Obviously, as we already said, I want to watch the third one again, but I, I would like to see the the complete overarching growth altogether, and then to have that ending of three, where we have our family is leaving the nest, but they're all leaving each other's nest in a way that a lot of characters aren't entirely happy with. Like, on screen, they express, like, well, is this it? Like, are we done? Rocket is just like, well, that's all she wrote then? All this was for everyone leaving and it's like that that is exactly what it was for they've grown they're still in each other's hearts they're gonna cross paths in the wild galaxy again but now they are finally in a place where they can be apart and together and this is jumping ahead a little bit here the the return of these characters or at least some of these characters I want a sour well, taste to leave in my mouth. <laughs> I know. The legendary Star-Lord will return was the stinger at the end of this. And we can try to convince ourselves that it's like the spectacular Spider-Man. Like, oh, it's a different kind of Star-Lord. But I think we both know that that's not how they're going to run this. Quill gets the ending that he deserves and the one that was kind of robbed from him. We haven't even talked about the fact that you mentioned we like to view these movies as contained. And unfortunately... Endgame and Infinity War have robbed us of that. That mm. there is too much that they have to reckon with from the fallout of those films to really make this a solid independent trilogy, which I wish that it were able to be. But Quill gets to go back to Earth. He gets to go back and see his grandfather and live the normal life that was taken from him by his father and Yondu, and his own grief, his own guilt of not being able to return to Earth once he was old enough and able. Yeah, because, I mean, it's an incredibly complex idea where it's like he obviously was literally kidnapped and trafficked and thrust into the life that he knows, but he had pretty much every opportunity to go back and have that reconciliation with himself and who he is on Earth. And that's why the ending here is genuinely satisfying, where he does go back and he has the desire to live a life of not constant danger and not constant intergalactic galaxy-ending problems and be with himself, be with his family, be the person that he was never able to be now that he has found the peace with his issues with Gamora and second Gamora and the rest of his family, which is another thing that I think we both really appreciated about this is that they plop second Gamora down into the Guardians pretty swiftly in this movie, and then they don't shoehorn in some kind of feel-good, like, we're gonna make Peter feel better now, and second Gamora's maybe gonna give a hint of, like, I'll give you a chance or whatever. And, and it's they not to let... say they don't have a romantic connection, because there certainly are a couple of moments of that. For sure, there are nods, and there are looks here and there. When they depart towards the end, of course, there, there's a moment that they share of, like, maybe there is more to you that I could, in some dimension, in some universe, be with, with my heart. But they let Gamora, second Gamora, new Gamora, whatever we're calling her, they let her go off and have her own kind of fulfillment in a way that I fully did not expect to happen. I really did think she was going to come back into the fold in one way or another, but then she gets to go and be genuinely happy without any, like, wink-wink, nudge-nudge, oh, maybe she isn't as happy as she thinks with Stallone and the Ravagers, but she really is. Brilliant deployment of the original Guardians of the Galaxy tease at the end of the last film. Absolutely. I really liked how they brought that through. Not not over the top, not super crazy, but like enough to make complete sense and be satisfying with Gamora's angle of what's going on. Not to mention, she did find Guardians of the Galaxy, just not the yeah, right ones. But they were the right ones, Garrett. They exactly. were her right ones, and that's exactly. why I'm so glad that Quill and Gamora both got to go off and find their happiness in where they belonged. I love that Drax had... Probably the most direct acknowledgement of his daughter since the first movie. Mm -hmm. He and Mantis have a good moment in two where he mourns. But 
when he is able to save all of those children and dance at the end on Nowhere after three movies and a holiday special and two other movies of hating dancing. Every movie we get another layer of Drax peeled away and and it was really beautiful to see all of that. The surprise introduction of the spy kids, one robot children who are all locked in the cages that he drops his veil. I love when he drops his veil. I mean, he's still Drax the Destroyer. He has plenty of moments of being Drax the Destroyer, but him breaking that down a little bit and doing the goofy little dance, the the little monkey impression that doesn't sound like a monkey at all. And like it moves like the robot. <laughs> yeah, bopping people on the head like the Three Stooges. Like, it, it was so sweet. A, a funny moment, for sure. Like, he's still comedic genius Dave Batista, but it really melted my heart a lot when he could get down to the level of and it, even pre-literal communication with the kids where he just reveals that he knows this random language. Jib Jib he, he Jib Jib, yeah, love it. But he he breaks it down and he opens his heart before he even opens his mouth to these kids and saves them in a way before even literally saving them. It, it was beautiful. And I think that that's a nice through line to Nebula says at the end of this movie, you are not Drax Destroyer, you were born to be a great dad. And, and it's so true! In two, that is a nice little through line with him and Groot, where Groot and him don't get along the whole movie, because, you know, Drax <laughs> is like, dancing, and Drax accidentally breaks the, the stereo at the end of the opening credits... Then at the end of the film, when it's time for Groot to sleep, the one who he is comfortable with, the one who he wants to be on the shoulder of, is Drax. In this film, you have seen Groot grow to the point that he and Drax have a largely nonverbal, because of course it's Groot, very special relationship that I think is told very articulately, especially when when Drax is really messed up by Adam Warlock at the beginning, and Thing Head Groot, with his little <laughs> oh, legs. yeah. Oh, that was so strange. Walks over and and tends to Drax because he loves him because he is a great dad. Drax is not part of the post-Guardians Guardians, Guardians, is he, right? No, he and Nebula stay behind and rule nowhere. Yes, that is right. You you think he's like the sheriff of nowhere? He's like beating down bad guys on nowhere, maybe? Uh, Who knows? I I, think he could do anything that that Drax. (laughs) He's so, oh, he's the best. I I really do. I I very much enjoyed him in this movie and uh, again it's my greedy marvel brain i've got my marvel movie and i'm like i just want more of all of these characters and i know that that's not what this movie was doing even if they do the stupid tease at the end whether or not star lord runs into the avengers on earth and he needs to like you know saddle up with thor again or whatever i don't know what happened to love and thunder maybe thor's dead i don't know but, yeah, I mean, th- these characters are where they need to be, and I'm, I'm happy for all of them as if they were people that are real. And that's that's as effective as a movie like this can be, really, in, in the wrap-up phase of it all. I, I really appreciated that. And I'm, I guess I don't want to see Sheriff Drax or Mayor, Mayor Nebula, because I know they're, they're out there doing that, and that's where they're supposed to be. They don't need another Thanos. They don't need another high evolutionary to come bring the gang back together because the gang is already doing the gang thing and then we do have that post guardians with craglin and rocket and Groot are still there you have the kid that they saved who has like maybe high evolutionary powers Mm -hmm. uh cosmo is there which you know adorable love her and of course adam warlock And uh, yes, who we've barely even talked about. Again, part of my greedy Marvel brain. I really liked him in this. I think Will Poulter did a great job. Some of my favorite comedy bits were with him, if I'm being honest. Like, he's a character that I didn't think was going to be that way. I kind of had the, oh, it's going to be like the Superman version of Adam Warlock, which we were kind of chatting about last night. But he's very much not. He's very much just another misfit created for a purpose who finds their true purpose with like a you know a person inside of them at a certain point i i liked it a lot and i i wish to see more of him in some capacity i suppose but i i I have a feeling that's not gonna go down well i think he's probably one of the more likely options and one of the ones i would be less upset by to be honest 
but I think you and I are both pretty much off the Marvel train. I think this is our stop. We're pulling the shoot cord right now. We are. We saw the Marvels trailer again in front of this movie, and we were a couple weeks ago. We were like, yeah, maybe we'll see that, and now we're like, man, whatever. Like, who cares? Amazonani looks funny, but I don't want to do a bunch of Marvel homework. I don't. I'm too. I'm too tired. There's too much other stuff to watch. <laughs> so much better stuff to watch, I'm sure. And a lot of people dropped off at Endgame, which is respectable. I think this is uh, just as respectable as a drop-off point, I feel like, for the both of us. I needed to see this film. Guardians 2 is the Marvel film, as I said last week, that I value by far the most. I wanted to see what Gunn could do. If this were done by Taika or somebody, I wouldn't have cared. You know, I would have seen yeah. it. Yeah, oh yeah. But I wouldn't have cared. And I'm glad to be here now and have seen the finale that Gunn wanted to craft and truly be done. Because also, we haven't talked about Groot talking, Seamus. Another absolutely infuriating theater-going moment. What is certainly going to be the, the least understood moment in cinema in the year 2023. <laughs> oh my god. Where Groot looks around at the entire gang and says, I love you guys, and everybody in the theater goes, Groot can talk? Instead of understanding that pretty well done in the in the filmmaking is the fact that that is not actually Groot speaking. Speaking those words, those it's, English words. We are finally allowed to hear Groot as the rest of the Guardians are able to, as they are able to understand him. Exactly. We, we as the audience, having grown with this family, are now part of this family. In this final wrap-up, we get to be in their group huddle there. Like you're saying, they set up a great trail of, like, the other Guardians having to translate for Gamora. And then later her, you know, maybe not literally understanding what he is saying by I am Groot, but feeling the intentions behind what he is speaking and even that part of growth in this new version of Gamora translating out back through the entire pod the little the little contained pod of growth that she has in this one movie that we actually get to know her and then us kind of attaching ourselves to that new understanding and being a part of the moment together I can already just see articles being like, the craziest moment of the MCU, Groot finally learns how to talk. And it's like, shut up, shut up, just be in the moment. Stop trying to drag every moment through the Marvel machine that it is already trying to avoid. It, it, it sucks. It's also a nice mirror of the moments of the Guardians become the Guardians and Guardians 1, as Rocket would say, now we're a bunch of jackasses standing in a standing circle. Standing in a circle, of course. Yeah, I, I, I very much clocked that as well. I do want to talk about a moment that was both frustrating for us on a theater-going level, but also frustrating for me on a thematic level the more I reflect on it. Probably the most, except for, you know, our audience did love the post credit scene where it said Star-Lord will return and everybody clapped and was like, wow, isn't that great that Star-Lord's coming back? <laughs> um, That's what I was waiting for. The scene where they first turn and decide that they're all going to save the remaining slaves, the High Evolutionary's creations and test subjects on the ship, there is a extended faux one-shot hallway mm. fight scene. There's been a lot of discourse lately about the merit of the one-shot and... It's something flashy that filmmakers do that audiences have decided means that it's a hallmark of great filmmaking when, in reality, computers have made that easier than ever to do. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't necessarily reflect craft or even a distinct visual style as much as it does reflect something flashy. You know, Spider-Man No Way Home has a one-shot that a lot of people lost their minds over that I think is kind of unintelligible filmmaking. But... This is a pretty well-crafted, pretty exciting visual spectacle. And it has, like, the classic Sam Raimi zooming in on a guy's back, and then Star-Lord <laughs> shoots straight through him, and then you go through the hole in the guy <laughs> yeah, to see yeah. somebody else. And Groot puts his fingers up a guy's nose and then explodes him from the inside. Honestly, more brutal violence, again, than I'm accustomed to from at the MCU. And it's a very kind of mean violence this is a very mean movie more in line with the tone i would say of the first guardians in mm -hmm. the way that they approach violence although this violence is certainly more graphic 
it was a difficult thing for me because on the one hand, it was interesting, it was entertaining, though it was frustrating to hear everybody clapping and cheering and being like, F yeah, dude, the guys behind us. Oh my god. Especially. Could have been a lot more enjoyable if it wasn't for the guys sitting directly behind us. I agree. Like, play-by-play. I I say play-by-play like they weren't just going, that's literally just saying, that's so cool, and like, oh man, Oh, oh, gee, that's so that's so rad. It's like that's we what can, they said. Oh, gee, <laughs> I'm sorry, I, I'm stopping myself from the other the expletives that were sh- being shouted out at inappropriate moments. You know the scene that I am about to bring up from another movie, Seamus, the Kingsman Church scene. <laughs> yes, honestly, yeah, dude, I didn't even think of that, but that is astute. I like that a lot. A very similar kind of scene. And on top of that, I think has a similar thematic dissonance, although not exactly the same. In Kingsman, it's the violence is supposed to be horrific, and the filmmaking is glorifying it. However, in this, they're on a quest to stop the high evolutionaries' rampant killing and torture of living beings, and then here we are reveling in our heroes dismembering and brutally murdering a crew of people who were created by the high evolutionary explicitly to be cannon fodder and die in this exact way not even rocket who obviously is the one who even goes and saves the raccoons and everything else not even rocket takes really even a second to reflect on the fact that hey these guys are also victims of the high evolutionary and i know that they've got a job to do and i know that they don't have a lot of time but even an acknowledgement of that would have made that sequence, I think, a lot easier to swallow for me. I definitely agree on that. For how much time they take, um, the focus on Rocket as, like, a created being, something who that was built and pieced together like a jigsaw puzzle, which was, I mean, we didn't even talk about the, the hologram of him being just, like, wailing as a baby raccoon, being injected with things and pieced together with robotics and all of that. The thing that really messed me up is the, you know, shaved top of his head where his skull oh, has been yeah. removed and replaced is really hard to look at. Yeah, dude. Yeah, yeah. So, the, we, we could talk all day about how upsetting that is for sure. But yeah. Being face-to-face with other creatures who were clearly put through the same cybernetic enhancement without anesthetic for some reason to make them, like, <sighs> battle bots... I think that would have added a lot, actually, instead of, like, well, I agree that the hallway fight was very exciting and well done with the... They're, like, swapping the different characters' focus, like it's the Guardians game where they're all executing their different specific moves, doing their whole thing, but kind of working together there. It's flashy. It's it's a fun, interesting battle scene, but that acknowledgement would have gone a long way, I think. And that's why it didn't work for me as well as, like, some other more fun, crowd pleasy moments that, while I do not think warranted the applause that they were garnered with in our showing, were good and well-written and enjoyable. I liked Kraglin finally figuring out how to use Yondu's arrow, and Cosmo defending him with her telekinesis. Mm-hmm. I really enjoyed the hubris of Groot being allowed through with 17 different guns. (laughs) Yeah, tentacle arm gun massacre Groot just covering Peter Quill while he's also rolling around. I thought that was actually a really cool action moment. And one that has some thematic weight behind it. The high evolutionary thinks that he is the greatest being in the universe, and that's really the reason that he resents Rocket, is because Rocket's even smarter than him. That's the moment that really bothers him, is that Rocket corrects him on something that he's doing wrong and that's what seals rocket's fate there's a line that he has someone's like for god's sake and he screams back there is no god that's why i'm here to fill his place or something Mm -hmm. of that effect you mean when the mutiny happens and everybody claps in the theater oh my god dude because that mutiny could have done its own done the thing that it was there to do that i think that's a good scene i think it's a good moment and i do think it's nice to see normal people say enough is enough and stand up for themselves the idea that it's like they too are enhanced creations they too are slaves of the high evolutionary who are finally to the point of their own evolution where they're saying we now are rebelling against our mad creator and that that could have worked so 
well and and then it it got flattened by everybody everybody just yelling like yeah they got the bad guy i don't know why i did it my craglin there for a second peter they got the bad guy you're a bad dog. I'm not going to go back on it. I'm not going back on it. I'm sorry. It's a good scene. <laughs> yeah, with him and the collector guy from Guardians 1 and that other snarky Ravager guy who's like his partner who never really gets a name, who's like his co-pilot at who some point. Is- Marlon Brando's son, I learned wow. today. Is that true? That's, yeah. That's crazy. What? That's such a strange role for, <laughs> for, that, for that person. Another strange role that I very much enjoyed, Nathan Fillion, the most he's had to do in any any of these movies. I really liked his role here. He's hysterical. Constantly Although I really did think he killed down. Drax for a minute. I really thought he did. I, I don't want Drax to die. At that moment, when I thought Drax was fully dead, I thought we were switching gears into this is where the Guardians start losing people on this quest as they mm-hmm. go. Like, they're going to start one by one. They're going to be captured or killed. Peter's going to have to face his own extra baggage of, like, what am I willing to do to save my best friend, one of my Ooh, family like members. Like another Nathan Fillion property, the movie Serenity? There you go. There you go. Nathan Fillion should have joined the Guardians. I'm saying it right right now. His he should weird have... flesh meat suit. <laughs> yeah, he should have been like I'm bailing on my underling who I constantly talk <laughs> that was bad about. <laughs> he does not waste an opportunity to talk about how that guy sucks, and I I really did like that. He's incompetent. I got one of those. Like, yeah, you do, Nathan Fillion. Oh, I want to see the short that's just Nathan Fillion and that guy. Don't Marvel Brain, Seamus. Don't Marvel no, Brain. No, come on. The shorts, the the Guardian shorts are good, and we know that, yes. Garrett. But, I, uh. I saw a tweet this morning that was somebody being like, Disney, I've got your Disney Plus show right here, and it's Rocket and Floor and Lila and Tease. And I'm like, what movie Absolutely did you Absolutely not. What are they doing? talking about that is such a i'm almost insulted by that for the part of the movie that affected me the most which is the eloquently done flashbacks that piece together rocket's backstory that that's insulting to me that they would go back on that kind of moment where they're all killed in front of him because of his own actions more or less like that that sucks and then I want to touch on, because this is a Guardians of the Galaxy movie, the use of music in this film. Oh, yes, absolutely. Because it is decidedly different from the onset of the film than the tone of the music. I mean, obviously, they use music in very different ways throughout the first two Guardians films, you know, to mm-hmm. express different emotions. But when your opening credits are Rocket walking around nowhere listening to Creep by Radiohead, and then a drunken Peter Quill yelling at him for borrowing his zoom without asking you're in for a different kind of movie yeah the intro that i was unprepared for with the exception of the hallway fight which now i can't even remember what song was set to what was it no sleep till brooklyn was it, it was a, no sleep till brooklyn i think so which i ah, it adds another layer to our thoughts about that hallway scene i think at least it was a free bird um, oh my god but we talked last week about the Guardians of the Galaxy 2 musical numbers being euphoric, even the sad ones being euphoric mm-hmm. in some way. And here it's like the opposite. The music, it doesn't get you that release or that excitement. It feels empty. It feels like something that the characters just need to keep moving. It's a dependency. It's not an actual release. You know, like when they play This Is The Day by The The as they're on their way to save Rocket, and it's like, it, it's not the hell yeah moment that it would be in another Guardians movie. It's a, okay, this is what we need to keep moving. And I think the idea of it being a dependency is brought full circle when Peter almost dies. And I believed was going to die when he drops his Zune. And then later, off screen, gifting it to rocket he does give it to rocket he doesn't take it with him back to earth it's this thing it's his token of earth that he is giving up because he is getting what earth is he's getting his human life and he doesn't need that anchor to keep him sane to keep his humanity in his own type of way and he gives it to rocket the person who probably needs it the most after how much we see peter rely and need like really need that for himself in the other movies and rocket passes on 
that love of music to the new class of Guardians, who all are yeah. talking about music in the final scene of the Because it's technically a mid credit scene, but it's really just the last scene of the movie. Yeah, yeah. They're all talking about the different songs, and that's where Come and Get Your Love by Redbone, the very first song. Well, not the very first song, because the very first song is I'm Not In Love, I think, when Peter's mom's dying. But right. the iconic Guardians 1 moment of the opening credits being Come and Get Your Love, then reprised at the end as a moment for Rocket to fully come into his own as the team's leader. Mm-hmm. And also, I mean, the lyrics to that song are just resonant with the themes of the Guardians trilogy as a whole, come and get your love, right? Every movie is about the battle for the family that they have found, and it, it's incredibly resonant. I also really enjoyed Dog Days Are Over at the very end, in the last sequence of the film before That's the, the dance roll. sequence, right? Yep. That's when everybody gets to really finally let release the sigh of relief they've been holding in since guardians one and like just be not only is that a a celebratory cathartic song for a celebratory cathartic scene it also is the most recent song ever featured in a guardians film implying to me there is a sense of moving on of moving forward as well definitely oh yeah I definitely felt the exact same way because it took me a minute to realize what song they were even playing. And then I, I felt that wash over me. I mean, even in this movie, they've got the Zune and the, the music is, is quite updated versus like Guardians 1, of course. So even throughout the movie, they're, they're creeping a little bit closer and then they get that final period on the sentence of what the musical evolution of the Guardians meant. I mean, them as characters, to us as movie goers, people who are witnessing this on regular Earth, having so much more awareness of what these pieces of music actually mean. I, I thought it was incredible. And the creep needle drop at the opening credits mm-hmm. could have been really trite, I think, and felt like, oh, of course, you know, it's creep. But it, for me, was the start of a theme that then continues to run through this entire film. That song is overplayed for a reason in that Radiohead was able to capture a sense of alienation and self-loathing that obviously not only is it ubiquitous here on Earth, but it is resonant with a creature out in the universe, and that throughout this film we see moments of music, not upbeat music necessarily, but music that as some form of catharsis that is able to resonate with aliens around the galaxy. Absolutely. Like, I I definitely agree with that. And that's why that opening moment is, like, Mumble singing along with the words as he's kind of, as we're kind of, you know, seeing where Nowhere is at at this point in the Guardians timeline. And there are moments where the lyrics of music are paid special attention to by characters, but a lot of the time it is driving music. It's dancing music. It's it's music for the action that is happening, but it's, it's this little raccoon internalizing these lyrics from a band halfway across the galaxy that he feels in his chest, in his little robo kill switch chest that that pushes it so much further. And then his drunken confrontation with Quill and he's blacked out and pissed off and how this little raccoon, he's he's feeling these lyrics probably every second of his life and he's just having this moment to himself and then immediately accosted and called names and by somebody who is by his own words like they are best friends and and that that odds with it in his own personality of that self-loathing comes around so well when the when the music at the end really flips that switch for rocket for all the other guardians together in in a way that that dark opening really sets them up for There's so much more to talk about, but I think we're going to have to call it Seamus. And I'm sure we will continue to reflect and bring up this movie on this show as we go forward. And if anything, this conversation has made me very primed for you and me to find time to go see it very soon again. Yeah, exact same feelings about this. I want to see it again. I want to see it in a cleaner environment, damn it. Hey, maybe we'll do it like the Rocketeer, and every once in a while we'll just pop <laughs> Guardians 3 into the schedule here and, and come back on it with more thoughts. I think if we ever have a reason, I, I pray that we don't, but I think if we <laughs> ever have a reason to revisit Guardians 3, I would revisit Guardians 3 again. This is a film that I'm going to have 
a evolving and challenging relationship with it is the most challenging film that marvel has ever made that's not even Mm -hmm. in contest regardless of what you think of it but we're gonna go ahead and move on to our pop culture reference for the episode let's do it For this week's pop culture reference, we're going to be talking about the 2023 Writers' Strike. On May 2nd, 2023, the Writers' Guild of America officially declared a strike to dispute practices from the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers regarding streaming residuals and the use of artificial intelligence technology in writing development. Secondary issues in the strike involve things like mandatory staffing, healthcare benefits, and WGA pensions. The 2020 Minimum Basic Agreement, the collective bargaining agreement between the WGA and the AMPTP, only applies to the wages of broadcast television and film writers, leaving writers working for streaming organizations to individually negotiate and, as a result, get less pay than their broadcast and film counterparts. The NBA expired on May 1st, 2023, the day before the strike went into effect. During a writer's strike, writers cannot do any writing, revising, pitching, or discussing future projects with companies that are members of the AMPTP, which compromises essentially every Hollywood media production organization. Picketing has also been occurring outside studios, including Disney, Warner Brothers Discovery, Netflix, Amazon, and dozens of other companies. Being members of a separate guild, animation writers are not impacted during a WGA strike. The last major WGA strike began in November 2007 and lasted for 14 weeks, sending major network television and film studios into a spiral. This resulted in a massive win for the WGA, with an estimated loss of billions for many of these prominent studios, and a writer's contract ratification which received a 94% approval from WGA members. During this strike, both Disney and Warner Brothers Discovery sent out letters stating that they expected showrunners and all other writer-producers to still perform non-writing services on projects for the studios. The WGA calls these A through H duties, and they are defined in the WGA contract as writing services that fall under the umbrella of struck work during this kind of labor dispute. It is also worth noting that while Disney and Warner Brothers Discovery are trying to define showrunning as a separate responsibility to writing work, both studios often push down showrunner wages to the WGA minimum. Though the strike has only been ongoing for four days as of the time of recording, highly anticipated projects like the MCU's Blade and the Community movie have halted production and live television programs such as SNL and many late-night shows are without current material, resulting in rerun scheduling. Seamus, I am sure you remember, and I'm sure you're about to bring up some of your examples of how bad writing got during (laughs) the last writer's strike. I mean, shows that I love, such as Friday Night Lights and Heroes, got really bad. Heroes straight up never recovered. And oh, so sad. Friday Night Lights, as you know, has one of the most infamous storylines. <laughs> it shows exactly what all of the writers striking are trying to prove, which is this is not something that is easy, and they should be compensated fairly for their work. And if it takes movie studios having dips in quality that extreme in order to reckon with that, then, you know, that's what it takes. Although... Honestly, this is a sad thing to say. Based on our experience at the movie theater last night, our audience is even going to know. They could just watch a Guardians of the Galaxy written by ChatGTP, and they would be like, look at how many clapping and whooping moments there are in here. Of course, this is great. He I said, remember... let's get nuts. <laughs> God, oh God, that Flash trailer. We even talked about it, I think, back when we were covering the Craig Bonds, the insane production problems of quantum of solace and that whole saga of the 2007 writer's strike famously to this day we we wish quantum of solace was better right off the back of one of the best action movies ever created and it just got absolutely drowned in poor writing and editing that they were trying to wrap up during the writer's strike back then and i can't take another quantum of solace garrett i know i i fully support this strike they need to get the rights as employees that they are demanding here studios will push garbage they'll push garbage even if it's written well to an extent but they're gonna push what they have no matter what i hope that those billions in losses start racking up fast again because shutting down blade shutting down the community movie things that people genuinely are excited for that's gonna leave a mark for sure and hopefully 
we won't have to go so long as we did back in the day. But with that moment of solidarity with our WGA brothers and sisters, do you want to kick it on over and save the rec center? Let's save it. Save the rec center! Now it's time to save the rec center where we bring you our weekly rec of indations. Seamus, what do you got for us? I was talking to you a little bit about it after the movie last night, but I recently finally watched David Cronenberg's The Fly. Not at all what I was expecting. I had the general premise down. I understood a little bit, you know, it's a Cronenberg. I know what I'm going in for. But man, was it incredible. I I thought it was the most fascinating, uh, true to Cronenberg form, absolutely disgusting, reimagining remake of a classic horror film in one of the coolest ways I've ever seen. You got your Jeff Goldblum in there. You've got your Gina Davis is the, the love interest. It's grotesque. It's fascinating. I don't need to tell you how good the practical gore effects the practical monster effects are I've been in a movie like Hollywood. this i've seen that big fly oh my god i really yeah i'm no never mind i was get. i'm, I'm about to spoil the fly a movie that came out a hundred years ago but <laughs> i was fascinated by it all it was incredible and disgusting and scary and somehow kind of makes me want to watch the sequel that they made that david cronenberg did not direct i, I, didn't know I that don't existed. know I don't know what that would do to me or if that would even be a fun time, but I just really, really loved this one. And I, I'm a big Cronenberg fan in general through and through, and this is one of the classics that I just never got around to for some reason that I'm really, really happy that I did. After getting it as a framed question a couple weeks ago, it, it jumped out at me when I was scrolling through, and I have never looked back. It was incredible. As Craig Ferguson once said, you know, the producers of Fly were in a real pickle, and they were like, ugh! Where are we going to find a guy that looks like a big fly and Jeff Goldblum just walked in? <laughs> oh, man, I was expecting more. I was really expecting more giant actual housefly stuff, if I'm being honest. But that's not how that's not how it rolls. So weird. Isn't that, I, weird? Isn't that weird? Your stomach would probably turn at a lot of the things that you see on in that movie. But it is so worth it. I'm ready to go. But what do you have to save the rec center this week? Well, I've been talking to you about this, so look at us. <laughs> we gotta stop hanging out between podcast recordings, Garrett. <laughs> I recently acquired a Nintendo Switch, and I have actually played no new games on it the entire time that I've had it. I have not touched Super Mario Odyssey, which came with a free download with a console. However, I am several worlds into a childhood favorite of mine, given new life on the Nintendo Switch, a Super Nintendo Entertainment System classic, Donkey Kong Country. It's a great game with great graphics, a very charming 3D aesthetic, obviously made with cells, great platforming gameplay with an interesting variety of worlds and types of platforming and enemies. It's pretty bare bones, you know, we're used to these old school 2D platformers, but the classics are a classic for a reason, and it is just as good, if not better, playing it now on the Nintendo Switch as it was when I was seven years old sitting playing with my Super Nintendo. That sounds like an actual blast, dude. I have always been very interested in that Nintendo eShop emulator section where you, they kind of have a lot of those classics of a lot of different eras, but honestly, you're, <laughs> you're not playing any new games. That's exactly how I would, you know, be the exact same way. You go, Nintendo specifically has the real classics. You know, I, I experiment a lot with PS1 games on the PlayStation Plus service, and a lot of the times they're, they're very clunky and they don't necessarily hold up as well as you think, but those old Nintendo games are the real deal. And I'm sure you are absolutely loving those save state files so that you could play them all the way through, which is maybe the best tech advancement in classic video game stuff in a long time. But I think that wraps us up for this week's episode of Pop Culture Reference, or should I say Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. <laughs> yes, yes. If you want to reach the show, you can find us on TikTok, Twitter, and Instagram at PCR underscore podcast. 
Email the show directly at popculturereferencepod at gmail.com. Like us on Facebook, follow us on YouTube, give us a like everywhere you can, review us, whatever platform you're listening on, it really helps the show out. Next week, Seamus, it is finally time. (laughs) I live my life a quarter mile at a time, (laughs) and we are about to take on the Quarter Mile Fast Saga Mini Marathon which will involve us doing a smattering of Fast and the Furious canonical material that you and I have not covered as part of our respective marathons on this show previously. I will leave it for the audience to find out next week exactly what it is that we'll be covering, but I am very much looking forward to a fridge full of Corona, lots (laughs) of family talk, and prepping for the insanity that will be Fast X in two weeks. I absolutely cannot wait for that, man. I, that is going to be, it'll be an interesting new mode of marathon that I hope we revisit because it's maybe a little less intense than our traditional style, but I'm I'm nothing but excited. I can already taste the corona on my lip. Well, I will see you very shortly when you and I get to that, and for everybody else, you'll hear it next week. Smoke them, amigos. Smoke them, amigos.